So Job is right before the Psalms, Job 31. I want you to hold a finger there in Job 31 if you have a physical Bible. Just kind of mark your place and turn also to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in your New Testament, okay? We're going to start with the 2 Corinthians 5 passage to kind of set the table for tonight. So Job 31, 2 Corinthians 5, and uh, let's pray. Father, thank you again for tonight. Thank you for the music ministry that Shane has brought as we could enter in and praise our holy God, our Father, our Savior, our Redeemer, our great King. You're the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you are our Savior, our God, our friend, our Redeemer. And thank you so much that we can serve you. We're here tonight because of you. We want to know you better. We want to learn your ways. A lot of us have been thinking about the beginning of a year and how we can uh, just make sure our target is set on the right things, that we're looking to the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. We want to fix our eyes on you, not the things of the world, Lord. We want to look away from those things and look to you. We want to run this race with endurance, a race that's been marked out before us. We want to walk in the good works that you prepared hand, beforehand that we should walk in them. So help us to be faithful. You are faithful, Lord. And even when we stumble, help us to get back into the race, knowing that you're a God of mercy and compassion as well. And we just thank you for tonight. May you be glorified in this study of Job 31. And may you take it where you want it to go for your glory. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Second Corinthians chapter five. This is an intriguing couple of verses. Here's what it says. For we, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Notice that the judgment seat is Christ. Many of you will be familiar with the Greek word for judgment. It's bima. And scholars have pointed out that bima is not a judge like in the court of law, like a judge behind a mahogany bench ready to cast a sentence. This particular setting is the judge in an Olympic competition who's giving out rewards for people who have run or competed well. Paul concludes a majestic chapter on the resurrection and things pertaining to the hope that we have through the promise of the Holy Spirit. And he says, we must all appear before the judgment or bema seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, in light of this truth, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. There's this concept in the Bible of a final accounting that we will give to God, and we have to remind ourselves that the accounting that we will give to God is not in regard to our sin, because our sin was nailed to the cross with Jesus, we've been spending a lot of time in Galatians making sure we understand the gospel. That the gospel is Christ becoming a curse for us, absorbing the curse, taking the punishment that we deserve, and crediting us with his righteousness, his sacrificial death, his triumphant resurrection, his perfect life, the moment that we place faith or believing trust in the Lord. He transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. 
God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that is a settled deal. So you might say, well, then what is this judgment seat in 2 Corinthians 5 written to a Christian congregation? This judgment seat is the Bema. And it tells you and me that we're going to have a day when we stand before our maker, our savior, our redeemer, and notice that Jesus Christ is the judge. If you're interested, write down John 5.22, where Jesus says, all judgment has been given to the son. Jesus be the judge. So you want to make sure that you know him because he's the judge. And there's passages in Matthew 7 and Matthew 25 where Jesus is depicted as saying, you can either enter or not enter because I either know you or don't know you. He says to a group of those 10 virgins, the five that didn't have the oil, depart from me, I don't know you. Many will say, Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and that in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. There's passage after passage that we need to realize that Jesus is the judge. And sometimes people in the world want to dismiss Jesus. And it's something like this. I'm cool with God. I don't know about Jesus. But Jesus says all judgment's been given to him. And 2 Corinthians 10, 5, I'm sorry, 5, 10 says that we must all appear before what? The judgment seat of Christ. Now imagine for a second that and I don't know if you're going to talk, and I don't know if I'm going to talk, but let's just say that you have a chance to talk. You know, there's passages in the New Testament that say that we will give an account. Hebrews 13, 17 says, leaders will give an account to God for how we led the church. There's this idea of an accounting in some of the gospel stories that Jesus tells about people who were entrusted with a certain stewardship, and then they will give an accounting to their master. So imagine for a moment that you'll have a chance to say something. Let's say that you appeared before the Bema seat of Jesus Christ tonight. What would you say? What kind of accounting would you give for your life? I'm not giving you an imaginary scenario. It's gonna happen. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, what will he judge us for? Well, in this case, it's not a judgment for sin. He paid for our sin at the cross. Go over to Job 31. It is a judgment, if you will. A, uh, he's ready to give rewards out to those who ran well. Some will have nothing to show. There's another passage in Corinthians that says they will be saved as through fire. But we will be rewarded for what we did, how faithful we were. I say this to tell you that Job 31 is about Job chronicling his life of faithfulness. And Job 1, and we've repeated this several times, so I won't take you there. You all know that God was bragging on Job. There's nobody like him. He's a righteous man. He's blameless. He turns from evil. He does good and he turns from evil. God commends the life of Job. So in Job 31, when Job is going to kind of recount his faithfulness to God. Don't dismiss that as a prideful chapter in, in uh, the book of Job. Job is not being arrogant. He's desperately wanting to be vindicated by God. Because remember, Job is an innocent sufferer. 
He has not sinned against God so that what he's getting is a consequence of sin. He's actually a good, righteous man. There's nobody like this guy on the earth. This guy is a noble man. He's a good man. He's a compassionate man. He's a deeply spiritual man. And yet he's suffering. And this goes to something else that we need to understand. And that is that all suffering is not a consequence of our personal sin. People suffer and sometimes die what we would consider die young and we don't always understand. Nabil Koresh is uh, an example. He was a young man, came out of Islam, became a Christian, joined Ravi Zacharias uh, on his apologetics team, was passionate, effective, finds out he has stage four stomach cancer. If you've ever seen this video before, there's a, there's a very emotional video where he's in his hospital bed on the verge of death. Doctors say there's no more hope. His organs are shutting down and he closes his eyes. His lips are all parched and he says, oh God, please heal me. Something like this, but, but whatever you do, I trust you. God didn't heal him. He was a good man. He's being used mightily by God. He's a guy in his early 30s, handsome, articulate, educated, powerful platform to reach into the Muslim world and share the good news of the gospel, and God takes him. Do I understand that? No. Is my heart broken as I'm watching him in the hospital bed? Yep. And that tells me, that's just one example of many that we could cite, that suffering doesn't always make sense. God's ways are not my ways. I don't understand everything, but I have today. And one day I'm gonna appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And I wonder how many of us are really living in light of that. I wonder how many Christians you know tonight that really believe that's gonna happen and are living their life in the light of that meeting. Literally, you're gonna meet your maker. You're gonna meet your savior. You're gonna meet your God. And I'm talking to myself when I'm saying this because I need to be stirred constantly. Now, later on, you know, Job is gonna make this appeal to God and he is going to get an audience with God. And I think, you know, most of you have read the end of the book and you know, what that is going to look like. But right now, this is Job's last word. The, the very last verse of Job 31 says, this is Job's, uh, the words of Job are ended. So if you read commentaries on the book of Job, scholars like to point that out because it's poignant, right? These, these are the last words other than his being in awe of God and just saying, you know, <laughs> I retract everything I said, I repent <laughs> now, now that I've seen you, right? But these, so this is powerful because this is like the last speech, the recorded last, last recorded speech of Job. What does he say? Quick review. In 29, he recalled his former days of glory when everything was going well. In 30, chapter 30, he talked about his days of disgrace where he's being made fun of and he's sick and he can't make sense of his suffering. And in chapter 31, he makes a final appeal to God. One scholar called this section an oath of innocence. Job's going to recount his life of faithfulness with the question kind of behind it of why God? If I, if I live the right kind of life, why do you let me suffer? He opens this way, Job 31.1. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? 
Now, verses 1 through 34, if you're taking notes, catalog Job's faithfulness, we will see 14 categories, two sevens. So in Hebrew thought, and we could take this to the New Testament, seven's the number of what? Completion or perfection. So you have two sevens. So you could look at this as a catalog of Job saying, when it came to life, my overall life before God, it could be categorized as faithful. I was trying to be the right kind of man. He opens the chapter with something that may be familiar to many men. If you've ever been involved in any kinds of kind of men's ministry or if you've struggled with pornography and ever come across a website called CovenantEyes.com, CovenantEyes.com, this is that website, that ministry is based upon Job 31.1. And I won't beat this drum, but you all know how rampant pornography is in our world. It's just an absolute epidemic. And so Job 31.1, Job opens, cataloging his faithfulness to God. God called him a righteous man. And he says, I had made a covenant with my eyes. Now I'm going to take you through categories, the 14 categories. If you're taking notes, the first one is lust. And essentially what Job is saying in every case is, I didn't do this. I didn't lust. In fact, he says in verse one, I made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Now, the idea of covenant will kind of bookend chapter 31. And the idea of a covenant is an agreement, a contract. We have an old and a new covenant. Jesus initiated the new covenant with the, the uh, institution of communion. We're going to take communion at the end of this particular message. So we're in a covenant with God. It's a new covenant. And it's possible, based upon Job 31.1, to make a covenant with your eyes. Now, if you've been out in the world long enough, you know, uh, I'll talk to the guys for a second. Guys will say words like this. Well, yeah, you're married. You could read the menu, but you don't have to order. <laughs> and then sometimes guys are on these construction sites and girls walk by and they're gawking at the girls. And, you know, it, it's, it's like... It's like almost like sport now. It's to be expected. Are you a red-blooded American? Then this is what you do. Is it? In Job 31.1, Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How do you make a covenant with your eyes? The idea is a pledge. It's an agreement. Job, one writer says, had entered into a solemn and binding commitment with himself. He said, I'm not going to gaze or gawk at a woman in that way. Now, let me clarify. There's nothing wrong with appreciation of beauty. God makes beautiful things and beautiful people. And I think sometimes it's ridiculous when we get so extreme that a guy has to walk with his head down and, you know, bounce into light posts and stuff like that. That's not what God expects of you. That's not how Jesus lived but you all know the difference between appreciation of beauty and lust. I don't have to explain it to you because we all know what it is. And the, the idea of the original language here means that you are looking at someone who you're not married to, who's a young, attractive girl in this case, 
with the intention of looking at her in a sexual way as to fantasize in being with her. And I'll leave it right there. That's what this is. And that's, it's in, incredible because as old as the book of Job is, Job has an insight into the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus shared. Jesus said, if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've already what? Committed adultery in your heart. Isn't it amazing? That's how godly Job is. Now, you might say, well, why did Job right out of the gate start with this area of life? Did he struggle with it? I don't know. I would say a lot of men struggle in this area. Women struggle in this area as well. I don't know if it was his main struggle, but it may well be that he started here to point out his inner life. You see, your Christian walk is not just about what you do on the outside. Amen? It's not just about showing up to certain places and having the right lingo and whatever and impressing most of the people most of the time. Your Christian life is about an inner life. God wants truth in my inward parts. And if I'm going to be real before God, I've got to let his searchlight come in and take a good look at this part of Michael. And this part of Michael ain't always pretty. You know, I can mumble on the freeway with the best of them. It seems like everybody's not in a hurry when I'm in a hurry in my car. Can I get a witness? What are you doing? What are you taking? That's why many of you have taken Christian bumper stickers off your car. I feel you. <laughs> anyway. You see, God wants truth in the inward parts. And Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, what? Now, it's not literal, right? I hope it ain't literal. <laughs> Pluck it up, you know, cut it off. But what he's saying is to take radical measures with sin. Here's something that I've noticed over now multiple decades of walking with the Lord and having similar struggles to many of you, especially in my early years, is that whatever I feed the most, I tend to crave. And if I start cutting off sinful patterns in my life, they start to lose their power. You cut off sinful patterns, they start to lose their power. It doesn't mean that you're not going to still struggle, but you will struggle less. But if you keep feeding the fire of those things, you keep feeding the beast, so to speak, then don't be surprised if you're struggling with it because you've been feeding it. You starve sin, it tends to die in your life. It tends to lose its power. So Job says each of these categories have kind of a penalty that he should pay if he were to do this kind of thing. In a series of three questions, one each in the next three verses, Job considers how God would and should treat him if he were to longingly look at a virgin. He said, what is the portion, verse two, of God from uh, above or the heritage of the Almighty from on high? Is it not calamity to the unjust and disaster to those who work iniquity? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? Now, Job's so-called comforters agreed that God was just, and if he did good things, good things would come into your life, and if he did bad things, bad things would come into your life, and Job seems to agree with that, although that's been blown up by his experience. 
And we've been careful to say that even though generally speaking, if you live a good life, good things will come to you, it's not always 100% foolproof. You could be doing good things at work. You could be the most honest guy in your company and get looked over for a promotion. And the, the dude who's cheating and manipulating gets the promotion. What do you do with that? Sometimes the wicked do get ahead for a season, but I'm sure you've also noticed that eventually everything seems to come out in the wash one way or another. Did you just hear about the scandal with the Houston Astros who stole the World Series from my Dodgers? It's just a personal rant just for a moment. But it turned out that they were stealing signs uh, electronically from the scoreboard and you know, heads have rolled and it's tainted the whole World Series. That was a great World Series, but it turns out that the, apparently the Astros, especially when they were playing at home, knew what pitch was coming. I can tell you with a baseball background, if I know you're going to throw a fastball and I don't have to worry about your curveball, I'm probably going to be able to have a higher average if I know what's coming. Well, this is kind of, you know, you see, well, they, yeah, they got the World Series ring. Yeah, there were celebrations. Yeah, they won it. But now, you know, things tend to, to go that way. It's not a perfect system because it's a fallen world. But Job says, look, and this, I hope this will encourage you instead of scaring you. Doesn't he see all my ways? Doesn't he number all my steps? You know, from a positive perspective, sometimes we feel alone and we wonder, God, do you know what I'm doing over here? Do you know when I'm honest, when I could have cheated and lied like that guy or that gal and I didn't? Did you see that? Because <laughs> sometimes we wonder that, right? And will, will there be any blessing that goes for doing the right thing? You remember when Hagar uh, was off in the wilderness and she had had the argument with Sarah and there was tension in the household and all of that. Hagar in Genesis 16, 13 calls Yahweh the Lord. Are you not the God who sees me? You are the God who sees me. So I want you to be encouraged that as much as we can turn that into a negative and go, well, God sees all my ways. That's scary sometimes. But on the positive end, he sees all your ways. He knows. He knows when you suffer. He knows when you do the right thing and nobody was watching. He knows when you fight a temptation that everything in your flesh wants to do something dumb and you turn away from it and you don't go there and you don't tell the lie and you don't look with lust and you fill in the blank. God knows he's a God of seeing. He's a God intimately involved with us. Now, the second category is falsehood in verses five and six. If I have walked, and notice that idea of walking is all over the Bible. Walking means living. If I have walked with or in falsehood and my foot hastened or hurried after deceit, here's the result. Let him weigh me with accurate scales and let God know my integrity. Job had not walked with falsehood, but if he had, he says, I wish that God would weigh me with an accurate scale because I think I've been an honest man. And being, becoming an honest man is part of knowing the God of truth. God is a God of truth. He's not a God of deception. And honesty is the best policy. 
It's very true. If you're an honest person, it goes a long, long way. Let him weigh me with accurate scales. Sometimes I get on a scale and I wonder if it's accurate. <laughs> Especially after all the holiday cookies I partook of. But that's another story. We won't go there. Anyway, if my step seven has turned from the way, Jesus is the way, we're to walk in the way, or my heart followed my eyes, or if any spot has stuck to my hands, let me sow and another eat. Let my crops be uprooted. Now Job is talking about falsehood here, and he says, look, if I've, if I've lived, third category, if you're taking notes, verses seven and eight, if I've been a covetous man, coveting is a kind of a, it's a sin you can easily hide because it's looking at other people's stuff or their spouse and wanting it for yourself. And want, by wanting it for yourself, you wish they didn't have it and you had it. Could be their car, could be their motorcycle, could be their abilities, could be their spouse. And the moment that you start coveting what belongs to somebody else, that's a sin because it becomes all about you. Rather than you rejoicing that someone else has these blessings, you can't be happy that they have them. You've got to have them. That's the, uh, a sin of selfishness. And Job says, if that's me, I pray my life would be stained in such a way that it'd be evident and that my crops, I'd plant them, work hard, but somebody else would eat them. That's, that's the judgment that I would deserve. Now remember, Job is defending his life. So he's not saying that he's done this. Now the next category is adultery, verses nine through 12, if you're taking notes. This is different from lust because lust is the action of the mind where adultery is the action of action. The classic example of someone who lusted, he looked and he lusted and then he fell is David. And at a time, this is in 2 Samuel, that kings should be going out to war, 2 Samuel 11, David was home on his rooftop. He saw Bathsheba. He inquired about her. He seized her. He slept with her. And then the fateful words came, I am pregnant. Now, what do you do? So David goes on this cover-up mission, and he tries to get the husband, Uriah, to come home to be with his wife so that they wouldn't have any suspicion that it was his child. But you all know what a disaster that turned out to be. And God's heavy hand was on David. And God essentially said through the prophet Nathan, you had everything at your disposal, and you took this man's wife, what you've done is wrong. And David, truly, if you've ever studied the life of David, he never fully recovered from it. Never. He says, if my heart has been enticed by a woman, nine, or I've lurked at my neighbor's doorway, may my wife grind for another and let others kneel down over her. This uh, image is once again sexually freighted and you could even say it's kind of a brutal image. The idea of the first part of verse 10 is may my wife become the servant of another, like uh, grinding for, for him in the sense of uh, doing work, menial labor. He says, if I did this, then my wife would grind for another man's grain, NIV, 
and may other men sleep with her. For that would be a lustful crime. Moreover, it would be iniquity punishable by judges. For it would be a fire that consumes to Abaddon and would uproot all my increase. Now, Job lost everything. So he feels like he's being treated as though he had committed sexual uh, adultery, but he had not. So again, there, you can see the, the question. He's making an oath of an appeal of innocence before God. But he says, if I had done this, this would be a punishable crime. Now, in our world today, they have websites to tell you how to cheat without your spouse finding out. You can watch television program after television program where if someone cheats on their spouse, it's kind of like, it doesn't even matter anymore. It's like just to be expected. And if two people are sleeping together before they get married, that's like nothing anymore. So do you see that Job has a sense of what's holy and right and true? And he says, look, if I had done this, well, then there should have been a fire in my life. And the, the book of Proverbs in a section that talks about sexual sin says, can a man take fire to his chest and not be burned? And look, the world is filled with enticements and people make mistakes. We all, we all have made mistakes. God is a God of mercy. But wouldn't it be good if our culture, and I'm speaking to the church culture, could get back to a sense of awe for the covenant of marriage? Wouldn't it be good if the church could lead the way, not in a dictatorial, beating people over the head kind of way, but just by modeling the beauty of a good marriage? The marriage that you're in right now is the only one you got. And God expects you, if you're in a current marriage right now, all things being equal, and I know there's all kinds of exceptions. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Some guys hear that and say, impossible. <laughs> no, it's not. The verse is there because it's possible. Now, are you going to need all the help you can get? Yeah. Now, wives, submitting to your husband? Challenge, isn't it? But the Bible verse is there and we can't extract it from the Bible. And as you submit to his leadership and honor him as a leader and he loves you as Christ loves the church, what would that kind of marriage look like? Beautiful. It would be two people trying to do the best for one another. See, what we tend to do is we think, if only this or if only he would change or she would change the only way change is going to happen, everybody ready? If you don't hear anything else tonight, hear this one. The only change you can control is your own. If you spend the next 20 years trying to change people, rot's a ruck. But if you say, Lord, change me, there's things that I don't like that are going on with this other person, but I can't control that. I can't change that person. So change me. And I know some of you have prayed that prayer. If I, verse uh, 13, and this is now, uh, I think our fifth one on mistreatment of servants. You could maybe in our modern age talk about employee-employer relationship. 
if I've despised the claim of my male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me, what then could I do when God arises? And when he calls me to account, what will I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? We're all made in the image of God. And the same one fashioned us in the womb. Studying Ephesians and Colossians, masters and servants are both told, you have a master in heaven, so you treat other people with respect because they're made in the image of God. If you're an employer here tonight, treat your employees with respect. If you're an employee, treat your boss with respect. Job says, if I hadn't done that, then God would certainly be just to judge me. But again, Job is saying he did. Sixth category, lack of concern for the poor, verses 16 through 18. If I've kept the poor from their desire, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone and the orphan has not shared it, but from my youth he grew up with me as with a father and from infancy, I guided her. Would seem that Job took in both male and female orphans because he had a huge estate and he was able to supply for them. And when he had the disaster, many people suffered because of Job's disaster. He was a good man. I want to park here for a second and encourage you. Since God brags about Job's righteousness, if you and I are trying to figure out how to live a righteous life Every positive category here should be something that you take a note of for your own life, and I should as well. Everybody with me? So a positive way to look at this, since God commends Job for his good life, is that these are the things we should be doing and shouldn't be doing as it applies. And here, Job had a heart for the fatherless, for the orphan, for the widow. He says, if I've seen anyone, seventh category, failure to clothe the poor. If I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or that the needy had no covering or if his loins have not thanked me and if he has not been warmed with the fleece of my sheep. Job had been good to the widow and the orphan and good to the poor. If he saw someone without a a coat, without a blanket, he was quick to try to beat a need. If I've lifted up my hand, eighth category is perversion of justice against the weak. If I've lifted up my hand against the orphan because I saw I had support in the gate, let my shoulder fall from the socket. If I have used a power play to to mistreat somebody, I should have been there for. You know, James says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, that we visit orphans and widows in in their distress and keep ourselves unstained by the world. So Job said, if I didn't do that, if I manipulated the system, did it for money, threw around my weight and my power, let my shoulder, 22, fall from the socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow. For calamity from God is a terror to me. And because of his majesty, you could say his holiness, I can do nothing. Job is saying, if I were to abuse my power and hurt someone who needed my help, If I, for example, broke their arm, then my arm should be broken. You don't pay up, we break your leg. (laughs) You know, there's some systems out there like that. But Job is saying that I've tried to do the right thing. I tried to mend the the hurting one. Many years ago, I remember I was standing out in front of the church in Orange. 
I was a fairly new Christian, but I was passionate about the gospel. I was standing next to the senior pastor and a woman walked up and she had multiple uh, bruises and two black eyes and she had been beaten up by her boyfriend. And I, and I, I was speechless. I didn't even know what to say to her and I watched my senior pastor of the time minister to her, uh, get her to a shelter, bring some women in the congregation to pray over her. But I was just thinking, who is on the other end of this conversation? Who is this guy that would do this? What, what's going on here? Well, Job says, if I had done that kind of thing, then maybe what should have happened to me is that I should have it back from God's hand. Ninth is trusting in wealth. Ninth category, verses 24 through 26. If I put my confidence or trust in gold or money, called fine gold my trust, if I gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much. If you have an NIV, if I put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security. If you're in the stock market right now, things are good. But don't forget, they could go bad really quick. The real estate market sometimes is fantastic. If you buy a house at the right time, you could do really well. You buy a house at the wrong time, you could do very poorly. The stock market, the real estate market, you know, there's some investments that are better than others, but some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, some trust in apartment buildings, but we will trust in the name of the Lord. See, the Bible is filled with warnings about not boasting in your riches, but boasting that you know God. For the love of money, not money, but the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Now, Job was a wealthy man. He could have made his wealth his trust, but at this point in his life, where does wealth go? Bye-bye. Sometimes wealth just gets up and flies away. And if you put your confidence in those statements that you get, <laughs> watch out. Remember when the, the tech craze was happening and people were becoming millionaires and billionaires overnight and then the stock dropped and they were paupers overnight too? Oh, we got to Oh. <laughs> you can go from the penthouse to the outhouse in no time. Tenth category, we'll move quickly. Worship of the heavenly bodies, verses 26 through 28. The theme of trust continues, but here it is with idolatry. If I've looked at the sun when it's shone, or the moon going in it in splendor, and my heart became secretly enticed, and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth. Some of you are going, What, are you, what is this? Well, in the ancient world, they worshiped the, the hosts, like the the sun, moon, and stars, the heavenly bodies that the creator made. And one form of worship was to blow a kiss at the sun. Good morning, sunshine. And I'm not joking. This was a form of worship. And Romans 1 says that people who get involved in idolatry worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. How many people are talking about Mother Earth? And all the stuff about, that we hear that's coming out. My, the most important thing in my platform is climate change. Okay. 
I know the science is debated on climate change, but let me ask you this. Does the climate always change? I mean, it does. And it's like right now, we're hearing more talk about climate change than we're hearing about things that really matter. And by the way, the father of creation, not Mother Earth, is the one who's in control anyway. And when he wants to end the world that he made, he'll do it. Right? It won't be whether or not I recycled that one extra bottle. I'm not talking about being irresponsible, though. We are to steward the planet that we have been given well. I'm not talking about making excuses and I'm not trying to marginalize concerns that you may have in that area. But I am saying, should it be the number one priority? I think the number one priority for America we don't want to talk about is to get back to God. But nobody wants to talk about that because that's not popular, right? But, but America needs an awakening. Job says, did I hear a faint amen out there? That too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above if I worshiped the sun or the moon. 11th category, satisfaction at the demise of an enemy, 29 and 30. Have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy, the one hating me, or exalted when evil befell him? No, I've not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life in a curse. And all God's people said, rats, we can't do that. <laughs> I mean, sometimes when I'm watching a movie and the bad guy falls off the building, I have to confess. I usually don't say, oh, that's terrible. I usually say, good for you. You smashed on the cement. You deserve it. And then I have to go, oh, wait a minute, I'm a Christian pastor. <laughs> right? You know, the Bible actually says we're to bless those who persecute us. What? <laughs> I try to avoid that page in my Bible. Well, no, it's there. <laughs> right? We're supposed to be different. He talks about failure to be hospitable in verses 31 and 32. Have the men of my tent not said who can find one who has not been satisfied with his meat? The alien has not lodged outside. I've opened my doors to the traveler. These are all good things, good, good ways to live. Verses 33 and 34 were winding down. Concealing sin without confession. Have I covered my transgression like Adam? Remember Adam and Eve tried to make those leave coverings. Whenever it was a windy day, those don't work well. By hiding my iniquity in my bosom, because I feared the great multitude and the contempt of families terrified me and I kept silent and I didn't go outdoors because I thought, well, if I go outside and I admit that I'm imperfect or if I take a stand on something, I'll get some heat from people. So I just stayed inside. Job says, no, I didn't do that. I was in the gate. He was probably a judge and elder of the city. I tried to take righteous stands. Now we're going to come back to verses 35 and 30 through 37, but the final category, and I hope you've been able to track, I know I've been going quickly, but the last one, 14, is abuse of land. If my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I've eaten its fruit without money or have caused its owners to lose their lives, let briars, kind of a sign of a curse, grow instead of wheat, stink weed instead of barley. And then it says the words of Job. Are ended. Job says, if I've done wrong, I pray that my land doesn't produce. And you know, land 
can carry a curse. The idea of land being defiled is in our Bibles. But I like the image of a life. A life can be fruitful or a life can be barren and prickly and weedy, right? You can either be a nice tree planted by streams of living water or you could be a tumbleweed. <laughs> they just roll around, pick up prickly things and stick under your car. You ever try to move a tumbleweed without gloves? Oh, they're terrible. You got to try to stuff them into your neighbor's trash can. It's horrible. That was a joke. Your neighbor's... Here's what Job says. 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Behold, here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. The indictment which my adversary has written... Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it to myself like a crown. I would declare it to him the number. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Oh, that God would hear me. And he signs the oath of innocence. You got a picture like a document that he, he went through his 14 categories, an oath of innocence, signed it, Job, and sent it up. Oh God, I need to hear from you. I want to show you something. If we could put up on the screen, uh, I have a picture of the Hebrew here. And if you take a look, this is a page from a Hebrew dictionary. If you look at the top left, the signature word is tav, T-A-V. So uh, in the Hebrew dictionary, we have the aleph, that's kind of the A, and the tav is the last letter of the Hebrew uh, dictionary. As Moses would have written the language from right to left, the tav, the ancient way of writing it, looked like a cross. So when someone signed, and see, go down a little bit, you can see the definition of tav. It's the sign or the mark, and it means the covenant established. And the word is a cross and a nail. And when someone signed a document in the ancient world, apparently they, instead of like, Michael, Lance, and cursive, they, they would put like a sign of a cross. They would kind of seal the document. That was their signature. The sign of a what? I'm going to sign this document. And Job foreshadows who? Jesus. And Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. I need an audience with the judge. And isn't it amazing to think that the judge that Job appeals to is the one who's going to come down and be the ultimate innocent sufferer and die for Job's sin. And sometimes we cry out to God and we feel like God is a thousand miles away and there's no way he understands my problems. And then we realize that even Job, when he made his appeal to God, he signed it with the tab, with the cross, as if to say, this is how your concerns will be answered. There is a problem of evil, but there's a greater power in the universe, and it's the gospel. And the answers will be found in the cross. I won't be able to understand everything this side of heaven, but I know he's going to, Consider me innocent and I'll wear it on my shoulder. He's going to give me the crown of life. I can approach a throne of grace boldly and confidently because I have Jesus as my righteousness. Would you bow your heart for a moment? Father, thank you so much for Jesus. 
you know, these are Job's last words, an appeal, oh God, why? And we know Jesus from the cross, you said, Father, why have you forsaken me? We know you're the greater Job, the ultimate innocent sufferer, the answer to all that ails us. And Father, there, there are many times in all of our lives when we struggle with these questions of this broken world and, and the fallenness all around us and the division and the hatred and the, the death and the things that come our way. But what we know is that we serve a God who entered into our pain. The greater Job, this book is really all about a foreshadowing of Jesus who would come and suffer though he was innocent and do it in our place. And even from the cross, you know, he asked a question even though he knew why he was suffering and he was doing it in our place. And Lord, that may help us to understand a little bit more about what this Christian life is about. It's not about us as much as we struggle with that. It is about us taking up our cross and following you. And it is hard for us, Lord. We, we confess it. We struggle. But would you help us? Help us to just become a little bit more like you every day. To surrender a little bit more to you. Now, would you keep your heart bowed? If you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this would be a great time to ask him to save you. He died for you. He rose for you. He lived that perfect life that you could never live. Ask him to be your Lord and Savior. We're gonna take communion, and if you've been away from the Lord for, for some time and you need to do a little business with him right now, that, this would be a great time. Just say, Lord, I just wanna... I just want to walk in your ways. Help me, Lord. Thank you for forgiveness in Jesus, but help me to become more like you. And if you've been walking with the Lord and things are going well, then just bless his holy name and continue to move forward in your life with him. We pray all of that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.